Hello and welcome to the second episode of the International Studies Review of Books podcast. My name is Hasbenai, the Books and Reviews Editor at the ISR, the flagship review journal of the International Studies Association. In this second episode, it is a particular pleasure to feature a conversation with Dr. Aisha Zarakul, Professor of International Relations at the University of Cambridge, where she is also a politics fellow at Emmanuel College. Professor Zarakul's research interests span the fields of historical sociology and IR with a particular focus on East-West relations in the international system, history and future of world orders, conceptualizations of modernity and sovereignty, rising and declining powers, and Turkish politics in a comparative perspective. She has published extensively on these topics in academic journals such as International Organization, American Political Science Review, International Affairs, Review of International Studies, among others. She is also the author and editor of three books, all published with Cambridge University Press. After Defeat, How the East Learned to Live with the West, published in 2011, Hierarchies and World Politics, published in 2017, and her latest, the subject of this conversation, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders, published in 2022. Professor Zarakul grew up in Istanbul, Turkey, and moved to the United States to attend Middlebury College in Vermont, where she obtained her BA in political science and classical studies. She subsequently received her MA and PhD degrees from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Prior to teaching at Cambridge, she was an assistant professor at Washington and Lee University in Virginia. We hope you enjoy our conversation about her latest work. Professor Aisha Zarakul, thank you for joining us for this, the second book review podcast of the International Studies Review Journal. It's a special privilege to speak with you about your latest book, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern World Orders, published in 2022 by Cambridge University Press under the LSE International Studies um, series. Welcome to the program. My pleasure to be here. Uh, I want to begin by asking you about how the idea for this book came about. Uh, Before the West touches on many of the themes you've written about in your previous publications, conceptions of sovereignty and hierarchy, um, rising and declining world and international orders, historical sociology of East-West, international relations, recognition, stigmatization, and many others. So I'm curious whether the idea for this book uh, developed in tandem with those ideas, something that you had uh, 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 prior, uh, even if you were developing those ideas, um, or it's their culmination in a way. Uh, thank you for that. Um, well, uh, in a way, it is a, it is the culmination of uh, my earlier projects. Um, a number of different uh, paths led me to this book. Um, I mean, one was my. Uh, growing dissatisfaction with the histories that we have in international relations. Uh, you know, for many years we've criticized the traditional Westphalian narrative as you know being a myth or uh, being Eurocentric. Uh, but uh, you know, the, the question of what to put in its place had had not necessarily you know been answered. Uh, not, not that I'm claiming <laughs> to to replace the Westphalian narrative, but uh, I was looking for histories of international relations that did not center the West, 
uh, or Europe, but also did not center, uh, you know, particular regions or, uh, you know, nation states. Uh, and then I, I thought maybe, you know, I should write the book <laughs> that um, I wish existed, uh, you know, a history that starts in Asia, um, but doesn't necessarily focus on just one region of uh, Asia. Uh, so that was one uh, thread. The other uh, thread was, I was working on sovereignty, um, conceptualizations of sovereignty. Uh, and I was doing that within the Turkish Ottoman space or generally Islamic, you know, history, I suppose, because it was more accessible to me. I thought, you know, if not Europe, like, where can I look uh, for comparisons? Uh, so I was teaching myself, you know, that particular historiography, and I started noticing um, historians making the claim that there is a, you know, great transformation uh, on how, you know, sovereignty is understood and practice or rule, you know, I should say, um, in what would we call may maybe the early modern era. Um, and some scholars attributing that to the influence of uh, the uh, Timurids or the Mongols, uh, that certain uh, concepts came from Asia and intersected with Islamic practices, uh, which actually tended to, you know, uh, restrict <laughs> the authority and power of um, of the king or of kings. Um, so noticing that, just noticing the influence of, uh, you know, the Mongols or the Timurids in, you know, uh, in the Middle East uh, made me think, well, if they had influences there, they must have had influences elsewhere since they were <laughs> all over the place. Uh, so then I started reading about, you know, uh, you know, different uh, regions and geographies. And then I thought, okay, maybe this is the way to, you know, write the history that uh, you know, I wish existed, start with the Mongols. Right. And finally, a third <laughs> thread was my first book, you know, um, After Defeat deals with um, the incorporation of non-Western powers into the modern international order. It makes an argument about stigmatization. And it had remained kind of a puzzle in my mind when I wrote that book uh, as to why so many different actors across Asia were behaving in similar ways in the 19th century. So that was all. That was kind of an unaddressed puzzle uh, from my first project. And I thought going back in time, I might be able to answer it. So that was yet another <laughs> right. uh, thing that was driving me to this. Right. But was the idea for this something that you had a long ago? Or is it just more, you know, I don't know, a lot of... Um, academics during the pandemic thought that it's time to kind of bring mm -hmm. all these threats together. And since this was in published in 2022, or 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 did it was it something that came later? No, I, well, actually, it you know it took me a long time. So uh, I would like to say, you know, the, this idea of the Mongols having had you know uh, influences across right. uh, Asia or Eurasia. I presented a paper, I think, on this. Uh, I want to say maybe 2017 ISA or somewhere around there. Uh, and then I we had, you know, relatively positive reception. People seem to think, you know, this was an interesting idea. Uh, 
so then I thought, you know, first the paper, then I thought, okay, well, maybe this this can be the book project. Uh, so I was slowly working on it, but it took me a long time just to teach myself, you know, the the historiographies of all these different regions, different different time periods. Initially, I was just going to do the Mongols and then skip to the you know, 15th, 16th century and talk about maybe the Ottomans, the Safavids and the Mughals. But then I really wanted to put, uh, you know, China in there. And uh, and then, you know, once I did China, I thought I should do the Timurids, you know, like so right. it just grew and grew. <laughs> and then I, I wanted to say something about, you know, Russia and Moscow like uh, and bring the story into Europe. Uh, with the Habsburg, so like just, <laughs> I mean these these are entities that are not normally studied together. Uh, so just teaching myself the histories and then making them line up. Uh, you know the time, even the a timeline that has all of it doesn't exist. I had to create. <laughs> right. Like I had these huge sheets in my office uh, that uh, where I like put the you know dynastic timelines, timelines of wars, right. you know. Mark all the interactions across uh across the space um yeah yeah so right before the pandemic i had produced i think three chapters and uh and i had gotten a book contract from uh cambridge based on that and a proposal uh so i think that was fortunate so we went into the pandemic and then you know i used that time of you know lockdowns uh, in the uk just right uh writing the book uh and yeah so yeah. it took me uh, the first year of uh the pandemic i think to finish yeah i mean book. it's uh, i'll come to the timeline in a bit but one of the interesting <laughs> things that jumped at me is the amount of kind of uh parallel readings in history you must have done on your own and how long that took to kind of get this timeline all patched up together from these various different great houses different world orders that you bring into Kind of continuity with each other etc what's the how big a task was that just the historical excavation um it's 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 a huge task i mean i aided by the fact that i can read very fast so this right. you know as somebody who does, who works primarily from you know secondary sources as kind of a theorist or you know historical sociologist i suppose this is uh so i read a lot i read fast uh and uh, but you do have to it's just like you know mountains of <laughs> right uh literature that you have to consume because i also don't want to do uh what we sometimes do in international relations which is to kind of cherry pick what we like from other disciplines and then just bring the things that help our arguments uh into into the debate so i felt a responsibility that you know many people would learn this history and you know the historiographical debates from this book you know i think it's relative i mean there are right. of course others written about it like um you know um uh, right. newman i and so on right. i mean others you know others have written about it a bit but for most ir scholars i think it's relatively new ground so uh i want uh to do it right and i want to uh to signal to the readers that some of the claims there are debates or controversies about you know so that's that's why the book has so many footnotes um yeah so just uh just the amount of reading you have to do right um not everything of course makes it you know right, right, into right. the book 
and then also the translation you know the each area like historical specialty or even time periods you know so so people writing about russia or china they may be actually talking about the same kinds of institutions especially during the periods these places were under the you know the rule of the same people but they might have different terms for uh, those things uh and uh yeah i mean a simple example is like the khanates you know they right. came to be called the golden horde in one place and like yuan dynasty yeah. not you know it's but they were essentially the same thing yeah so um you know just the that's translation it. yeah uh, is it takes while. that's that's great well let's get to the central core of the book um, there are so many interesting insights and innovations in this book really too numerous to list them all here but uh, i think a central conceptual insight is your critical reflections on sovereignty um as conventionally understood in IR, um, and then your own elaboration of an alternative um, uh, Chinggisid model of sovereignty as a gateway to understanding um, world orders in the East from the 13th century to the middle of the 17th century, I think is the historical time period that you have. Um, could you walk us through what this alternative sovereignty model um, is and how does it differ from the kind of the conventional models um, that yes. we have? So, I mean, in international relations, we work with, uh, you know, what's often called Westphalian sovereignty, or you might call it, call it you know, nation state sovereignty, the centralized territorial model, uh, you know, the, maybe the Weberian definition of the state uh, comes to mind. Um, which I think works for the most part. Uh, if we're talking about the 20th century, obviously, you know, <laughs> you know, there, there are debates as to, to what degree it's, you know, uh, it's universal or it obtains, you know, hypocrisies around sovereignty, etc. But, um, you know, when we tell the history of that, usually the starting point is, uh, you know, again, Westphalia, you know, the, the features of uh, modern uh, sovereignty, uh, are argued to have evolved uh, over centuries within the European setting. Uh, again, fine as an account, but uh, I think it's important uh, that that story doesn't uh, lead us uh, to the conclusion that <laughs> nothing like sovereignty has existed anywhere else in the world in on any other time period. Um, I mean, it's important because I mean, it's you know factually wrong. It's also important, I think, from an IR uh, theory perspective. I mean, the, if we can come up with a concept of sovereignty uh, that's a bit more uh, transhistorical, and then maybe see Westphalian sovereignty as uh, you know a subtype of sovereignty, uh, then you know we have many more units across history that we can you know think with. Uh, and, you know, I think it's just generally uh, just gives us more historical uh, real estate, so to speak, right. <laughs> to yeah. learn from uh, to the extent that, you know, international relations, at least partly studies relations between, you know, um, right. between sovereigns. Um, so what I'm trying to do in the book, um, in, uh, I develop a typology of uh, sovereignty, uh, you know, around hierarchy around territoriality uh etc i mean it's you know right. um 
those, I mean, those who are interested in the typology, I can direct to chapter one. Right. And then, you know, and then I say, you know, Westphalian sovereignty is one kind of sovereignty. Right. And then there are other kinds of sovereignty, which, and in this book, I'm interested in not Westphalian sovereignty, but Chinggisid sovereignty, what I call Chinggisid sovereignty, which is uh, not as territorial as Westphalian sovereignty, right. but it's, it's also quite centralized. But in that, in this case, the centralization uh, is not around, uh, you know, a state per se, but it's <laughs> um, it's uh, in the person of the ruler. Uh, the ruler uh, has, you know, um, all the authority, at least in theory, uh, is the lawmaker. Um, and, uh, you know, um, this is the sovereignty model, um, the empire of Genghis Khan right. uh, introduces or one should say maybe reintroduces in the 13th century. Uh, and that's what is um, mimicked uh, or uh, emulated across Asia uh, for some time, Asia and Eurasia for some time to come. And the link to international relations is that uh, the, the actors, uh, well, in this case, houses, you know, these are right. um, um, competing houses that subscribe to the sovereignty model. They uh, legitimate <laughs> legitimate themselves by world conquests. Uh, I mean, in this particular sovereignty model, the question as to why the ruler should have all this authority, why should all authority power be centralized in his person, that, that question is answered by saying, well, he's a world conqueror. Uh, so uh, this pursuit of world empire or universal empire goes hand in hand uh, with this particular understanding of sovereignty. And then I argue, as a result, those who subscribe to that sovereignty model, you know, ended up chasing world empires and, you know, they ended up creating uh, world orders uh, as a result. So that is... Right. kind of the link right um, um so it's an it, these are world orders of uh you know great houses uh it's not international orders of you know westphalian yeah. uh, nation states uh, but still comparable in some ways i think yeah and that and the three are the uh, the mongol or chinggisid order followed by mm -hmm. a by post chinggisid order of timurids and the um early I mean, main Early yes. Ming, and then then followed by uh, the uh, Sahib Quran, the millennial um, sovereigns yes. that that the different dynasties that take over. Yeah, so that's the the Ottomans, the Safavids, and the Mughals right. are the central houses in the 16th century, uh, and to some extent, you know, the Habsburgs and Moscovy uh, also come in, and there are some other others right. as well. And and one of the points you make in the book is that the it's aspects of this particular kind of sovereignty model that actually Europe inherits. It's not as if that in 1648, the Europeans just, you know, out of thin air, <laughs> these these different aspects come in, that there there's actually this prior interchange from the East that finds expression uh, and then develops obviously geographically different. Yeah, I mean, I, I so in one of the arguments that I make in the book is that uh, you know the 
in the 16th century, you have a great competition of the Ottomans, the Safavids, and uh, the Mughals, and they are, you know, all competing to be millennial sovereigns. They want to have universal empires. Uh, at the end of time, there's like this notion of, you know, an age <laughs> ending, uh, and uh, and then the Habsburgs link into, into this competition, uh, you know, because as they are rising in Europe, uh, they are, you know, this is often left out of IR accounts, but their primary, you know, rival is the Ottoman Empire. The Ottomans are, especially in the early part of the 16th century, are a huge presence in in Europe, uh, in the Mediterranean, etc. So the Habsburgs are competing with them. Uh, and you know uh the competition i think uh influences <laughs> how they think about sovereignty uh so they you know they are known as we know you know they are known as centralizers they we we know that they try to assert themselves over uh, even the church uh and then all the you know other houses in europe <laughs> kind of you know uh, pushed back against that or you know rebelled against that uh eventually so um so i mean what explains the centralizing move of the Habsburgs? i mean there have been different explanations you know they're bringing back all ancient notions etc but i i think at least partly it's because their primary you know rival referent is, is this type of you know centralizing sovereign that's chasing universal empire and if that's your rival you can't you know uh help but compete in those terms, and they use each other's titles, you know, like, uh, so it's quite demonstrable, I think. Uh, and my argument is that, you know, th that centralization impetus uh, that becomes more and more visible in European uh, politics after some centuries of fragmentation, many centuries of fragmentation, that is at least, um, that impetus is at least partly coming from uh, from the East. And it's something that actually it's perceptible in the uh, conceptions of sovereignty in the Roman Empire as well, right? The same kind of, um, yes. you know, uh, especially in uh, late Roman Empire of uh, the cult of personality of a leader being a dominant uh, form of uh, central authority, uh, but also universal um, empire or pretensions yeah. to it as well, that it's very much in conversation with what's yeah. happening in the East as well. Um, yeah, I mean, so uh, that's that's an important observation, and you know, I don't talk about this as much in the book, but this is something that I'm thinking about these days. Uh, I mean, in in some ways, Chinggis' sovereignty model, you know, uh, harkens back to an early earlier period. Uh, you know, in in West Asia and Europe. Um, you know, you had this type of uh, all-powerful sovereigns uh, in antiquity. Uh, so the Roman model is is one of them. Um, maybe Persian kingship, uh, and you know that kind of goes away. Partly, I think, as an influence of uh, um, uh, as a result of the influence of you know the rise of monotheism, um, kind of checks the power of you know the ruler. Cannot have all the authority because has to share at least some of the authority with, uh, you know, in in the European case with the church, and you know within the Islamic context, uh, the ulama, are, you know, well they don't 
technically make law, but by interpreting the Quran, they are essentially making right. laws, and it's not the rulers that say here, here, here are the laws. Right. So um, in in inner Asia, in Central Asia, you know they, they you know they don't, you know they <laughs> they they are able to. They are not operating in that type of uh, monotheistic setting. So they bring back this maybe you know uh, this understanding of sovereignty that um, right. that has gone away uh, in west part of Eurasia, uh, and you know that and then that picks up the echoes of you know Roman <laughs> Roman right. stuff and you know again the Byzantine stuff. So it reinforces right. uh, er earlier themes and understandings of sovereignty. Uh, I think, uh, as a practical matter. Right, right. And I should say, um, for those interested, these are very nicely Elabides World Orders uh, from uh, chapters two to five, uh, really lays out each of these historical time periods and looks at them both conceptually, but also um, historically um, as well. Um, this kind of leads to my next question, it's the kind of what brings these world orders ultimately to a halt um what happens mm. in and you have some hypotheses about why the 17th century is a kind of a end point for this um uh what happens then yes so um i mean one of the arguments uh that uh, you know uh, i came upon as a result of <laughs> this historical work is that Orders don't come to an end because of you know the competition of uh, main actors. Uh, in fact, I I've come to believe that you know competition, rivalry, even war can be reinforcing of order as long as uh, the two sides uh, kind of share right <laughs> um, the you, same understandings. And you, um, you use the Cold War as an analogy here. Of... Yes, yeah. So the Cold War, but uh, yeah. you know the. And then it, within the time frame I'm uh, looking at, you know, the er, the the Timurids right. uh, and the early early Ming, uh, initially they they share an interest in you know controlling inner Asia and they you know they they are competing, um, and then you know that is disrupted, uh, and both you know trade and competition stops, um, and I think uh, that's. Uh, you know, for each order that happens uh, in what uh, historians call these periods of crisis. Uh, so I think more, you know, more disruptive to orders are, uh, you know, periods where there are um, a, a number of what I'm calling in the book structural pressures that uh, um, press on you know the connective tissues of the orders, whether whether right. uh, the friendly connections or rivalry connections. So, uh, if trade is disrupted, if uh, you know, if competition is disrupted, if diplomacy is disrupted uh, for whatever reason, uh, I think this is uh, you know not <laughs> not great for uh, right. order sustainability. And then, if those crisis periods last for a long time, uh, then uh, my argument is when order is reconstituted, um, then it it may not look like <laughs> what was before. So, um, you know, in the book, as you said, I discussed three successive orders, 
which were all, you know, animated by what I'm calling the Chinggisid uh, understanding of sovereignty. Uh, I say there was a kind of like an underlying uh, ecumene the, right. co that connect these orders, uh, these shared, uh, very deep norms and understandings that people in those orders took for granted. Uh, but in the 17th century, you know, you have disruption for a very long time. What some historians call the general crisis of the 17th century. So that this is from um, the end of the 16th century, really the last quarter of the 16th century to the last quarter almost of the 17th century. Um, the, you know, there is great political turmoil all uh, across Eurasia in Northern Hemisphere. Um, and, you know, in Europe, you have the Thirty Years' War. Right. There are civil wars in the Ottoman Empire. There are uh, massive rebellions, a time of troubles in Moscow. Again, you know, rebellions in China and, um, you know, dynastic change. Uh, so, um, again, the argument is that everybody all the major actors kind of turned inward. They were dealing with their own, own uh, regional um, or what you may call domestic problems uh, to some extent. Uh, trade was disrupted and uh, essentially it was a period of disorder and fragmentation. Uh, and then when order was reconstituted, it was not according to <laughs> Chinggisid sovereignty principles, but you know, this is the beginning of, of course, the Westphalian uh, regional um, order. And the explanation for that, again, the historians now favor the explanation of climate change for as to why, uh, you know, the 17th century was so messy uh, in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, this was the peak period of what was what is called the Little Ice Age, uh, which is a cold period extending from 13th to the 19th century. And in the 17th century, it was particularly cold with very unpredictable weather patterns. There are other explanations as well, right. economic explanations, demographic explanations. Uh, in the book, I don't pick an explanation. Right. I don't say this is why we had crisis. For me, it's more interesting to say whatever the cause of the disruption, if it lasts long enough, that's when you may have, uh, you know, ecumenical right. um, loss. Um, yeah, yeah, so that's kind of the argument. No, and, and and I think the central point you're trying to make here is that there is no story of decline. It's not as if there is this kind of longstanding decline that gives way all of a sudden to Western resurgence. And part of the historiography you're challenging here is that there are these uh, palpitations that happen, there are rebellions, there's all sorts of uncertainty, disruption in trade, that all the factors that you laid out. But that's just how orders change. It's the, the you know, this story of this kind of decadent, declining, you know, static geography, all of a sudden giving way to Thomas Hobbes and, you know, the <laughs> beginning of an entirely new way of conceptualizing the world is a myth, really. Um, um, uh, yeah, exactly. I mean, actually, it's important to also realize that even in Asia, uh, the aftermath of, you know, the general crisis of the 17th century is a period of material recovery right. and, in, in fact, expansion. I mean, um, 
you know the Ottomans were doing economically relatively well uh you know in the uh in the 18th century uh you know Russia was expanding the Qing were expanding uh even you know Iran post of its you know under Nader Shah the right. Nader Shah almost conquered like India I mean so right. <laughs> these are not uh you know moribund entities just right. like you know uh as you said decadent you know right um and, just... and and you're right and this on page 38 the real puzzle is this if the material gap between Europe and Asia or Eurasia before the second half of the 19th century has thus been retroactively exaggerated why did eastern elites so easily fold ontologically in especially the second half of the 19th century when faced with narratives of European civilizational superiority. To put another way, why were they so easily stigmatized by Western actors? And there's a series of why questions that you list here. And this kind of leads to an interesting question in my mind that I was thinking because um, this from the kind of a recent IR historiography of of that answers some of these why questions. I'm thinking in um, George Lawson, Barry Buzan's book, Great Transformation, they posit these ideologies of progress. Um, you know, this is 19th century industrialization brings about, you know, a belief in progress and those get kind of encoded in liberalism, nationalism, scientific racism, etc. Why are there or are there pre ideological precursors of this in this kind of fifth century span, five centuries of span that your work that, that you've looked at in the in the East? Uh, and is that really the ideologies of progress? Is that the reason why so much of our historiography of what came before is inflected in that way? So the question of whether ideologies exist in the past is an interesting one, and I'm 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 not an expert on you know um, history of ideology, but my sense is that there's something linked between you know what we call ideology and you know the modern understanding of agency. Um, so ideology is almost something that's intended to grab like large numbers of uh, people uh, who you know can pick between different you know belief systems it's like there is i mean i see hidden in there this modern understanding of agency and the individual um and uh and i think that's why we talk about you know ideologies in modernity and we don't always talk about ideologies uh um in in the past uh now if you go back to the time period i'm looking at you know agency is not distributed in quite the same way so it's hard to talk about it. like of course there are people and maybe we can say society even but even those are slightly modern terms right it's a world where agency is very much located uh in uh i mean of course the sovereign but also like various powerful actors houses and so on elites um aristocrats of that world uh, and then there may be some self-made, you know, merchants and so on, but it's not uh, presumed to be <laughs> evenly distributed uh, across those who are uh, ruled. So I don't think ideology has the same kind of function uh, in these, uh, you know, uh, past societies. Having said that, I think uh, 
there were belief systems that organized, uh, you know, behaviors. There certainly among elites, uh, or and the intelligentsia of today, uh, and again different takes as to, um, you know, how to legitimize power. So the Chinggisid model that I just talked about was one way, and you know, conquest. Another way was, you know, Islam. You know, but they. I don't know that they, you know, thought of it as. Here's here's my ide ideology. Um, there isn't that degree of maybe reflexivity about it, uh, but yeah, it's a it's it's a very interesting question that maybe I need to think more about. But or maybe you know, sorry, maybe I gave you a more complicated of an answer than you were uh, uh, seeking. But I I also I'm quite interested in uh, you know this agency structure relationship how it's not actually constant across history. We kind of tend to assume it's always the same, but I think agency increases, decreases, uh, and it's not always distributed in the same way uh, in different time periods. So I'm I'm interested in historical variations uh, in these things that we kind of take for granted. Um, now, coming back to the, you know, the modernist ideologies of the 19th century, um, I think certainly, they played an important role uh, in the stigmatization uh, of of the East, uh, because you know of you know the kind of the linear teleological you know view that they were pushing um, implicitly explicitly internalization of you know those modernist ideologies in the East meant <laughs> internalization of the idea that there's you know a linear path. Uh, and if you deviate from that linear path, there's something wrong with you. Like uh, temporality was always used to kind of create these like social hierarchies. Um, yeah, so I think they they are a very important part of you know the stigmatization uh, story. And we see, you know, in terms of the relations Europe has with the East uh, in the time period I'm discussing in this book. Uh, Europe is relatively, you know, peripheral until 16th, 17th century, you know, to a much larger order in Asia. Um, I mean, there's interest, maybe there's fear, uh, but there isn't condescension. And then, you know, that uh, that continues for a long time. Uh, and even like 17th century, I don't think, you know, these social hierarchies that we take for granted uh, really exist um and you know when uh you know when does that start flipping uh i think really you know in the 18th century and really you know in the 19th century that east becomes like kind of like a foil to like a superior uh europe um and uh yeah, notions yeah. of kind of static um, Eastern despots yeah. also complement, you know, the development of um, Enlightenment thought and Enlightenment ideologies in Europe that, uh, uh, yes. in a very interesting way, are being deployed against sources of authority that resemble Eastern sources of authority. That kind of speaks to the the kind of the universality of this Chinggisid model, right? That is still present in yes. Europe as well. Yes, uh, and I mean, I'm not the only one to make this point, but, 
you know, centralization or like, you know, the absolutist model is considered like a step right. forward in European history on the way to the nation state model. But in, in the East, it's considered to right. be, you know, a sign of, you know, backwardness, which is, right. you know, um, right, right. <laughs> <a> double standards <laughs> right. anyway. But... <laughs> so in the second part of the book, you turn to lessons and also a kind of a, a admittedly my my favorite kind of analytical chapter on the uses and abuses of um, history, which I'll get to in a second, but on the lessons, <laughs> um, which is chapter six. Um, uh, so after kind of offering this historical uh, background of these different um, orders and what, how they uh, force us to rethink this, these kind of traditional concepts that we um, take for granted within um, conventional IR. What are some of the I would say um, conceptual and theoretical lessons to take away from looking at orders in this way um, uh, for IR today, and how much of that those lessons do you think are being taken on and and internalized by uh, contemporary scholars? Yeah, so I mean, one of the points I I, I make in that chapter is. Uh, if if one is interested in you know um, the questions of rise and decline in world politics, uh, then I think this history shows that we need to look beyond you know uh, great powers and or you know power transition. Um, I think we can still study you know great powers and power transition. In fact, you know sometimes I give book talks and uh, I get like. Uh, some realist colleagues in the audience, they say, like, what does this <laughs> imply about, like, you know, multipolarity or bipolarity? And, you know, my answer is, I mean, I don't know, but, you know, I've just given you some more cases, if, if that's how you like to think about it. Uh, and maybe, you know, uh, the same kind of uh, theories that are derived from, you know, European uh, history can be now tested if one wants to on this history. But, you know, what I'm interested in is not that uh, because I think that's you know a small part of the story because as I said I don't think actually uh, power competition uh, or whatever you call it um, is actually really transformative of order because as I said I believe this competition reinforces <laughs> order um, I think what is uh, you know um, more uh, Damaging or deadly for orders are uh, th these types of structural pressures that I've uh, referred to that, uh, you know, uh, disrupt connectivity uh, and also, uh, you know, legitimation crises, um, you know, when uh, orders can cannot, um, cannot legitimate themselves around their, you know, uh, basic uh, basic logic so um you know the changes at orders as i said you know end of conquest was always <laughs> a fraught time uh you know this 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 i mean legitimation crises can be solved you know you, there are various coping mechanisms you can find other ways of legitimating the order if the order is, is relatively stable but uh if legitimation crisis happens at the time of also structural crisis, then that doesn't seem right, you know, right. <laughs> great uh, for the health of the order. 
so anyway, the, I mean, the book is drawing our, our attention to that, you know, that level, you know, we, let's think about what happens to orders. Let's not just assume they expand because we on, if we only look at European history, orders are expand and they're replaced by orders that, you know, kind of continue. I mean, there is a great degree of continuity, but what if there isn't? Uh, I also think that, uh, you know, in the 21st century, we may be uh, going through a time that is kind of like the 17th century in terms of the levels of disruption, um, you know, whether we're talking about, you know, technological changes or climate change and so on. Uh, maybe we will have disorder for decades and decades, right? So is, this may be a nice historical analogy uh, for our time period. Uh, and then, you know, that there's the possibility of what I call in the book uh, ecumenical shift, you know, uh, just as the axis, the normative axis of the world for so long centered in the East shifted West, you know, maybe something like of that scale. And I think international relations as a discipline needs to do a better job of, you know, um, going to the, those other levels of uh, of theorizing and not just focus on, you know, the agency of uh, great powers, if, we're, if we want to imagine uh, what change could look right. like. Um, and I think the the previous um, five chapters are an excellent demonstration of that in terms of how that can be done. Um, all right, I want to turn to chapter seven, which because when I first read it, I was curious. It, it actually stands almost like alone uh, by itself, separate from the book that has a very specific conceptual framework um, and historical narrative. Um, how, so I guess my, my first question is, how does it fit? It's part autobiographical and, and part uh, intellectual biography of, uh, I think, six um, macro historians. Um, and in it, you're clearly making the argument for macro history as a very important um, uh, way of thinking about the development of international relations uh, 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 both historically, but also intellectually. Um, so what was the impetus behind kind of putting this, if I, and, and I don't mean, I mean this in the best possible way, a kind of a quirky chapter at the end uh, of the book? Yes. Yes, thank you. I, I had a uh, uh, good time writing that chapter. In fact, I wrote it first mm -hmm. before I wrote the rest of <laughs> the book because I wanted to, uh, I wanted to be sure myself that the project was defensible. Uh, so I had to kind of sort it out in my mind. Uh, and it's called the epilogue, but really it's kind of like a methodology chapter where I have a defense of, you know, methodology and research approach. Uh, and yeah, so it's it, it's about macro history. Uh, and I'm trying to, in that chapter, grapple with the disciplinary politics of macro history and also real world politics of macro history. So we know macro history was quite fashionable at the end of 19th century in the beginning of the 20th century in fact a lot of how we think about the world is actually still from that period right uh but uh you know it it was kind of uh abandoned i think partly because uh, you know it developed some unsavory <laughs> political connotations about you know, civilizational hierarchies and so on. Uh, 
uh, and partly because you know the increasing specialisms in all social sciences and humanities mean that um, it's very difficult actually from a disciplinary perspective to say especially if you're in the beginning of your career right <laughs> that you know I mean we we tend to uh, um, prize uh, uh, micro, micro approaches more uh, uh, and also uh, you know methodologies like um, that are that support the micro approaches whether we're talking about you know archives or even like experiments or like you know <laughs> um, so uh, how can you know at a time like this <laughs> when uh, maybe politically it's a bit suspect certainly from a disciplinary perspective it's a bit suspect uh you know how can i do macro history uh and the way i try to answer that question is you know as you said i like uh kind of look at the uh the life stories of uh earlier macro historians uh some whom i admire some i who i find problematic and try to think uh, about you know uh what they did right what they did wrong um and i also in that same chapter you know i make the point that uh my, i think micro history is uh in some ways uh unavoidable um so this is the this is the issue so, um even if we hate it even if we think it's doing violence to you know the lived experience of individuals, etc. Uh, it's unavoidable because we have to locate whatever we're working on in scholarship against like a larger narrative. Otherwise, we don't we don't really know how it relates to other things. So if we on if we criticize macro histories just as being politically suspect or um, you know being Eurocentric, etc., but don't really replace them. Uh, with alternatives or don't try to write better macro histories i uh i think they just live on you know the ear earlier problematic ones uh kind of live on <laughs> in in our minds you know um because you can't just have like void when you think about history you have to have something so that that's uh that's what i'm saying in that chapter i'm saying you know, since we need macro histories, let's try to do better. And this is what I'm trying to do. Of course, it's not perfect. It has its flaws. Uh, I'm, of course, very aware that, you know, I'm talking about Eurasia and leaving yeah. out <laughs> the histories of other very important, uh, the Americas, Africa's, uh, etc. you know, Australia. I mean, others should do other parts of the world. Uh, but we, we do need them. We do need... Uh, macro histories especially in international relations where so much of our thinking is shaped by what we think right. happened in right. the past well I, I think it's a fabulous um chapter and if you started writing at first maybe um uh, anyone picking up the book could also start with there and then work their way back not backwards then go back to <laughs> to the first chapter and, and yes. read it from there because i can i think it reads very well on its own um <laughs> Uh, it, it, it's fabulous. Um, my last question, and this kind of piggybacks on what you just talked about, it's about narratives. It's a uh, it's a term that comes up continuously throughout the book. And I couldn't, as I was thinking about um, 
uh, crafting my questions um, for this talk, I was reminded of the article that Hidemi Suganami published, I think, in EJIR 1999. Um, that's European Journal of International Relations for, for non-academics listening in. Um, when he talks about agents, structures, and narratives is the title of the article. And, and you're clearly, um, you know, uh, uh, saying that agents and structures have to be kind of understood as mutually constituting these orders that we're thinking about. But also a big, I guess, in a way, the, the big thing that this book is picking up is the narratives that have been weaved about the rises and, you know, decline of different orders, um, and especially with when it comes to uh, Western historiography vis-a-vis -vis the East. Um, is narrative itself a kind of a world-making, uh, to use a contemporary fr phrase, um, ideological tool? And it's is this, are you kind of in a way indirectly saying that narratives are really what we have to pick apart um, as much as also kind of rereading history and bringing it back because history itself is also a collection of narratives, of course. Yeah, that's that's a great, uh, interesting uh, question. Yeah, I think uh, I think in the especially in the time period that I'm looking at, I mean, yeah, the narratives that circulate in the space. I mean, it's, in fact, you know, along with various goods, maybe the narratives are the only things, you know, that circulate. So I, I think, yes. I mean, I hadn't quite thought of it that way, but uh, yeah, narratives are world making. And, uh, you know, I also like in writing this book, I mean, what, what am I doing? I'm, I'm trying to change, change right. the narrative. Um, I mean, so it's, you know, of course, you know, I'm, you know, as, as a macro person, I think much more about structure in some ways, but to the extent that, you know, agency exercise, I think it is through interventions on narratives that people use to make sense of, you know, um, the world or the structure, the, the larger things. Uh, I think that's where you can see, like, <laughs> the, you know, agency exercised. Um, and yeah, that's, that's yeah. a great question. Um, I have... and, I, and, and if <laughs> I may compliment you by, uh, at the end of this uh, podcast, I think one great way of countering um, the kind of ideological underpinnings of any narratives is the way you deal with that at the beginning of that fabulous seventh chapter. You write, I am aware that my own identity may render some of the arguments in this book suspicious to the reader. I was born in Ankara and raised in Istanbul, Turkey, and now I have written a book that claims to excavate Asian and Eurasian Eastern world orders, which can be compared to the European and Western international orders of modernity. My account is mostly about a network of ethno-linguistically Turco-Mongol dynasties throughout Asia, I realize that it is thus possible that the reader has reached these final pages suspecting me of some kind of hidden agenda for a political project of Eurasianism or Pan-Turkism or of justifying Asian unity under Turkish leadership in the 21st century. This is among the last things I would advocate, but I do not want to just casually dismiss the suspicion. I think that's a fabulous way for people to pick up this wonderful book, uh, once again, Before the West, The Rise and Fall of Eastern Orders, published by Cambridge University Press. Um, I thank you very much for this book. Uh, congratulations on publishing it. 
and thank you for being so generous with your time. Oh, thank you for having me on. Thanks.